The murder of George Floyd nearly three years ago in Minneapolis sparked nationwide protests and prompted renewed calls for police reform, even from some police unions themselves. Those conversations have been reignited after Tyree Nichols was brutally beaten by five police officers last month in Memphis. He died days later in the hospital. We asked you what you thought needed to happen to reform police departments, and here's some of what you had to say. What I would suggest very strongly is that police become licensed. I come out of a profession in uh, counseling psychology where we are required to be licensed and we have a board that we have to answer to. And as I'm sure you know, many professions require licenses. And I think if police were licensed by a board that is separate from the union, it would be very helpful. Thank you. Thanks for that message. We should note 37 states in the District of Columbia have certification requirements for police officers determined by state. Criminal justice advocates are pushing for more accountability of law enforcement and say powerful police unions get in the way. So how does change happen? And will unions agree to meaningful reforms? We'll get into those questions and a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from St. Louis is Heather Taylor. She spent 20 years as a St. Louis police officer and was president of the Ethical Society of Police. The organization largely represents black and brown officers in St. Louis. Now she's deputy public safety director for the city of St. Louis. That includes developing policies and procedures for the police department. Heather, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with me is William Jones. He's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota, focusing on labor and police unions. William, we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. And Ron Delord is a lawyer and police union negotiator. He's co-author of the new book, Police Unions and the Reform Movement, The Battle for the Future of America's Police. He was a police officer in Texas. Ron, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, first, I just want to paint the picture of the landscape of police unions. There are police associations and other police organizations that have bargaining power. Some police unions are represented by the AFL-CIO, which is a federation of unions. There's also the Fraternal Order of Police. Ron, explain the types of groups that represent police and their main goals. Well, it's very complicated in the United States. 800,000 police, 18,000 different agencies. And... Uh, people like to use the term unionize only if they have bargaining. But police in the United States, uh, many, many at-will states, no bargaining rights, all have a lodge association or a union. Police are one of the most unionized workers in America. So they have a lot of uh, different positions from the Northeast where they've had unions for 100 years into the South and the West where unions really have evolved over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. So even if there's not a formal bargaining unit, there is still, there are still organizations that can try to provide leverage for police officers? That's correct. Atlanta police don't have a collective bargaining agreement. In Georgia, police don't have a right to bargain, but they got a very large union that's very vocal. So Memphis, they have a union, you know, Minneapolis and most of the major cities. So but there's associations, lodges, in almost every major police department 
and even allow the rural and suburban police departments. Open Secrets is a nonprofit that tracks money in politics, and it says police unions and associations have spent nearly $50 million lobbying states in the past 10 years. Plus, they've contributed more than $70 million to state-level candidates and committees in that same period. William, what is the focus of their lobbying efforts? Like, like any unions, you know, some, in some case, they are, in many cases, they are, you know, bargaining or lobbying for better wages, for better working conditions. Um, but really what we've seen since the 1970s is that police unions in particular using their, um, both their collective bargaining power and their lobbying power uh, to, to limit accountability for police officers. So to place restrictions on investigations, um, restrictions on the way in which police officers can be disciplined, removed from their uh, jobs, restrictions on community oversight over police um, over police departments. Um, so that's been a really important part and a major part of the, the lobbying and also the where they have collective bargaining rights, the bargaining. Now, again, your focus is on labor in America and police. So when we think about police unions and other types of public sector unions, how are they fundamentally different? Well, I think it's, you know, it's important, as uh, Mr. Delord pointed out, there's a high level of variety, and that's because police and all public employees are excluded from the federal labor laws, the National Labor Relations Act, and other laws that give uh, workers in the private sector the right to bargain collectively. The National Labor Relations Act um, explicitly gives workers the right to go on strike. Um, and those laws do not cover public employees, so police teachers, any public employee. Um, so in that sense, police are, you know, like other public employees and, and distinct from workers in the private sector. Um, they're, of course, different from other public employees because they have a level of power to, to use force, uh, uh, deadly force, in their jobs. Um, and so uh, that has, that in, in many respects, sets them apart. Um, they also have a high level of, po- of political clout and power uh, that, you know, that many other public employees do not have. That's one reason why they are so well organized. Um, they're the highest, the most unionized uh, portion of the workforce in the country. Um, and, it's, and it's why they're able to influence uh, politics in ways that other public employees are not. Heather, in your experience, what are the primary challenges police departments face when it comes to accountability? I think the primary um, issue is what uh, it's always going to be your unions. Uh, Unlike probably most other areas in St. Louis, work rules do fall to the appointing authority. We have a public safety director who is the appointing authority over the police department. Uh, it wasn't like that until 2013 here. So one of the the main obstacles that generally um, hinder progress and change has commonly been uh, the union presidents here. Um, but on the flip side of that, I can say from being a uh, police association president that you know I was able to make a lot of progress with change that you know most people would not. Um, have had um, in their their others in their cities. Can you give us role. an example? Uh, just with body worn cameras, um, pushing for body worn cameras, pushing for 
um, having um, social workers respond to calls for mental health. As an officer, I know for a fact that most of us don't want to respond to those calls because we have no expertise there. And having people who have that expertise respond to those calls is very helpful. Having more victim advocates in, those are things that I was able to push and those things are currently occurring so much so that we've, we're implementing body-worn cameras in our corrections division. So it, change can happen if you have uh, police association presidents who are connected to those very communities, which is critical. I came from my community. I have a background of trauma from that very community with law enforcement. So for me, as a president, that's that's what pushed me. I'm from that community. I was recruited from that community, became an officer. And that's what you want a lot of times. And a lot of times they're not from those areas. Well, you, you had a personal experience that actually led you to become an officer. Can you briefly share what happened? Yeah. Um, my aunt was unfortunately murdered by law enforcement. Uh, Deputy Marshal shot and killed her. Um, he actually shot her um, in the back of the head. And from a law enforcement stand, standpoint, you look at it, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a case. This person will serve life, 30 years minimum. But he received three years, and that spearheaded uh, why I wanted to become a police officer. I had a brother who murdered an innocent person, and my mom held him accountable for that. She held him down until he was arrested and placed in a system that she didn't trust. So uh, the the rules of um, what accountability really is, sometimes you don't see that in law enforcement. But luckily for me, I had life, real life examples of accountability, how it should be with my mom and how it shouldn't be with the deputy who killed uh, my aunt. So, Ron, you are involved in negotiations for the police union. How open do you think unions are to reform at this point? Well, that's very generic because, as the professor said, one size doesn't fit all. I, I have found in where I'm bargaining in most of the larger cities in Texas and work with others that uh, they will negotiate those rules and accountability. I think the fear from the officers is to be made a political, uh, that the prosecution of them is political. I think officers recognize that when they use force, they are going to face a grand jury. And today, it's uh, more heightened. And they do realize they're going to be disciplined in many cases. So I think I'm currently bargaining in Austin, Texas, which is probably the most liberal city in the state. They've had oversight, a uh, police monitor for almost 30 years. Now, we're at impasse right now over that, but the union agreed to these things. But the community activists want more. So there's going to be a fight over what more means. So some unions oppose it, some don't. They're human beings. All workers worry about workplace rules and, this, and their job security. So it's not just unique to the police, but uh, as the professor said, uh, they're very political. So will they bargain over it? Yes. Some may, some won't, but a lot of that's controlled by the state legislature and controlled by the city council. 
Greg Kassar is a former member of the Austin City Council and a new Democratic congressman representing part of Austin. He tweeted this, quote, lock in weaker oversight with a four-year police contract that cuts out the voters or support City Council member Vela's one-year deal that gives voters a say in civil rights and safety, end quote. William, I want you to paint a broader picture for us because when we have these discussions, what I hear from unions is that they're concerned if they are called to account for their actions, that it's politically motivated. But what can you tell us about what accountability actually looks like when when officers shoot someone or are accused of excessive force? What typically happens when we look at it from a historical perspective? Right. Well, I think part of this goes back to the, you know, the sort of quandary um, that there's a trade-off between accountability and public safety. And that is actually a trade-off that police unions have really successfully framed um, since the 1970s. Um, Early in the 20th century, police unions and advocates for police unions argued that unions would be forces for reform, that they would hold uh, individual officers more accountable, that they would raise uh, wages and improve working conditions in a way that would attract uh, people to the profession um, and, you know, give them an incentive to perform well. Um, But in the wake of criticism that really heated up in the 1960s with um, over-police brutality and these really long-standing patterns of um, often very racist police brutality, um, police unions have tended to dig in and treat the uh, any movement for reform and any efforts at reform as an infringement on the rights of their uh, individual members. Uh, Rhonda Lord's book is is a very uh, powerful account of this and the way in which he's very critical of many police uh, unions for sort of digging in and taking a no holds barred position. Um, the reality is that, you know, police union contracts do provide, they're designed to provide um, a, a due process system for investigating uh, charges of, of abuse and, um, and violence. And they can play a really important role of protecting individual officers from that politicization. Um, on the other hand, I think we've seen a pattern of police uh, union contracts going beyond that and making it almost impossible to hold people accountable when there's clear signs of abuse. I mean, I think that's at the root of the debate in Austin that Mr. Delord referenced, um, you know, the question of whether, whether there can be a system of uh, community oversight of the police force and whether the police union will accept any measures of the, along those lines. We got this email from Michael, who says, As someone who is acquainted with police officers and sheriff's deputies, I can tell you the number one challenge to police integrity is the tendency of officers of whatever race to end up despising the people they are supposed to serve. As one Philadelphia sergeant told me, I didn't start out being racist. Now I'm just trying to make it to where I can draw my full pension. We also heard from N. Prue Ketting me who tweets, without question, there are smart actions cities could take in policing. However, the pros and cons should be well thought out. For instance, people shouldn't be pulled over for minor infractions like a missing headlight or taillight. This could be a realistic safety concern. And here's a voicemail we received from Chris in Tennessee. Especially in Tennessee, it is more likely than not that you are going to be proven guilty until proven innocent. And until we rectify that in the judicial system, There is no way 
police brutality will ever change because there just isn't enough representation in all levels. Thanks for that message. We've heard civilian oversight boards mentioned. Heather, in 2015, the city of St. Louis established its own civilian oversight board. What relationship did the Ethical Society of Police have with that board? Um, at the time, we supported it 100%. At the, that time, they didn't have subpoena power. And you know that you know most, most civilian oversight boards need subpoena power. So in 2017, they were granted subpoena power through a fight. We supported it. And it gave them more teeth. And now, you know, we also have the correctional facility that's included in the legislation that just passed. We'll get more into civilian oversight and police unions after the break. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back to our discussion on police unions and police accountability with this message from one of you. One of the things that could be most effective is to make complaints against police officers public. That would make them more responsibly done. That would make the police more sensitive to what was out in the public view. One time I was beat up by a cop and I went to my county manager and he said, look, just make a report. I can't respond to one event because the police union would come down on me, but the record over time will tell the story. We also heard from N Music, who tweets, I believe being a police officer should require a professional degree of two to four years, similar to that of a professional social worker. And the role of a police officer should include the protection of life, as well as to uphold the law. Now, William, you're working with the Harvard Center for Labor and a Just Economy on a series of recommendations for improving relationships between police unions and communities. What are a few of those key recommendations? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, the the, the caller just uh, mentioned, I think, a really important aspect of it, which is just transparency and public en- engagement. So, you know, allow police departments to publicize some of those record the records of police officers. Um, you know, there's a real, I think, a real concern on the part of police that they don't want, you know, sort of anybody to be able to file a complaint and make things up and that that complaint is automatically treated as valid. But there is you know, uh, there are often restrictions on um, the publicizing, publicizing even of, rec- of complaints that have been found to be true. Um, investigations, or if somebody has a really long record of repeated complaints, that's the kind of thing that should be um, public. People should be allowed to be involved. The public should be involved in the collective bargaining process. So, um, you know, there should be publicity around when contracts are coming up for renewals. What are some of the big issues that are at stake in those contract renewals? How can people, you know, weigh in on some of those issues? Um, the, the arbitration policies for, uh, for um, public sector unions are very complicated, and there's a number of ways in which arbitration can be um, made more efficient and also made more, uh, more just in a way that, uh, again, holds people accountable when they've actually been charged with violations. Ron, are any of those on the table in in Austin right now, publicizing um, police records, uh, getting the public more involved in contract negotiations, um, changing the arbitration policies? Well, I think the professor's correct. We we did change in the spent a year bargaining San Antonio to refine what the scope of the arbitration was. The city was upset over some officers who had been reinstated. And the union, you know, 
push and shoving, but we got a deal. It makes it clear uh, that the, the uh, chief's uh, decision, you know, there's a burden to uh, show that he wasn't correct, and that may reduce the number of cases where officers were fired but got their jobs back. Accountability and transparency, well, there's terms we throw around, but I think the professor put it correctly, except for things of which people come in and just file a complaint, they got arrested, they think they can get leverage, if they say, oh, the officer stole my money, the officer molested me, once those are found to be untrue, releasing those things, the officers fear that, but... I, I believe, and we have bargained in Austin, a very transparent, a very high accountability, and we've been able to do that. Can you do it everywhere? I don't know. There's just so many you know, things uh, differ between city to city. Well, Ryan, I'm also curious, in Austin, when those claims are being investigated, who's doing the investigating? Well, in most departments, it's only the department, but in Austin, the Police Monitor's Office, now for the last decade, has a representative in all the all the interviews in internal affairs with the officer. They have a civilian in the room. They can provide whatever questions they want to be asked. The contract that the council did not approve would have allowed the monitor to personally ask those questions, not to have to route them through internal affairs. And the monitor can also do uh, preliminary investigations. All those records would be public except cases where the case was unfounded, someone filed a false complaint. But, but ultimately, who, who makes that determination that the claim well, was false? A, well, in some states, they don't have a contract, so I guess they can do as they wish. And in, in places where they have a union contract, generally, that falls within the chief's priority. In Texas, that's a, in civil service, but our union contracts can supersede that and create a local uh, process. And in Austin, uh, we have civilians in the room. Not true in most of the other departments in the state. In internal affairs, there is no public review of of this administrative rule investigation. Heather, how does it work in St. Louis if someone brings forward a complaint about officer abuse? Who investigates that complaint and determines whether or not it's founded or not. So once um, civilian oversight became uh, real here in 2015 and was strengthened in 2017, all complaints go to can go to the Civilian Oversight Board. A citizen can walk in and file a complaint there. They can also walk into the police department and file a complaint with Internal Affairs. So now, since the bill literally was passed this week, uh, the new bill that strengthens for if you have a complaint on a corrections officer, on a police officer, you can go one place, which is the Civilian Oversight Board. They will take on all complaints. They will look at policy and procedures, and they have to produce four quarterly, uh, quarterly reports to the public um, showing what they've done and to, to show a level of transparency with it. So you can file a complaint now by phone with the Civilian Oversight Board, walk in and file a complaint, uh, and it'll go both places now until the mayor signs it into law this week. So, And so ultimately, I just want to make sure we're clear for our listeners, ultimately, who determines whether or not an officer abused his or her position? So it will be the Civilian Oversight Board commissioner now. 
that's, you know, since the ordinance passed, it was voted into um, law by the aldermen. William, when we look nationally, how common is it for complaints against police officers to be investigated by a body outside of the department? Right. Well, I think that, um, you know, a city like Austin, I mean, as Mr. Dillard pointed out, it's the, you know, known as the most liberal city in the state. Um, It's actually, I think, a a particular case nationally in that um, for several years, the local reform activists have been very focused on the police union contract and the negotiations. So in some ways, it's a it's an outlier in that they, they that people there have been particularly engaged in this process. And that's one reason why they have such a robust system of police overboard or oversight or civilian oversight of the police. Um, my sense is that that's not typical of places. And that's actually, I think, a really important component of a lot of police union pressure has been to weaken these type, this type of oversight. So um, uh, Adrian Florido mentioned that the new ordinance in Memphis uh, creates a civilian review board with the power to request documents. I'm not sure if that's subpoena power, but union contracts often prohibit subpoena power from uh, civilian control boards or review boards. They also, unions have often pushed in state laws. So we have these laws uh, that are known as uh, law enforcement officer bills of rights. Um, These are particularly important in states that do not have collective bargaining rights for police officers. But in some cases, they have both collective bargaining rights and these laws. And these laws often will um, either prohibit the implementation of a civilian uh, oversight over the police officer or severely restrict the power of those boards to do things like, uh, you know, subpoena powers and to hold accountability. So this is, I think, is a, you know, it's a moving target and it's something that it's, I think it's a focus of a lot of reform activists, um, it creating these boards and empowering these boards. Johnny Meldas, I think there should be comprehensive psychological testing prior to acceptance into police training programs. This could eliminate people with issues not suitable for police officers. We need to weed out sociopathic behavior like bullying, aggressive tendencies, people with the need to control others and cowards, too. We also heard from Eddie, who was a St. Louis City police officer. Eddie writes, I've been in law enforcement for 10 years. All officers are trained the same. So why do some officers go bad and others don't? The questions shouldn't be in training. It's in the psychological development of that individual. Before becoming an officer, a psychological exam needs to be performed to see if the person has the disposition for the job. Ron, what do you think are the best steps for police reform right now? Well... And I've said, and I've said this: there'll be no reform as long as reform advocates target individual officers. So, if that's all they're concerned with, that okay, more officers need to go to prison, nothing's going to happen. So, I, when, thing, you, when you say individual officers, do you mean an individual officer who's been found to be acting outside of the scope of his well, the, responsibility? The fact that let's just take a simple number: a thousand people a year are shot and killed by the police, and it's been pretty consistent, right or wrong. Each are judged criminally and administratively, but there seems to be this volume that we're going to fix the problem if just more officers would be prosecuted, if we could strip them of qualified immunity. And I'm saying, I don't have a problem with that, but that's not going to fix anything. Everything the city of Memphis is adopting is just wind addressing. 
You're going to fix it when you balance the social network we have in this country so that the poorest people who are normally black and brown get a quality of life that, the, they, that services are provided to them that the police do not have to deal with as they are now. Every city in this country has turned their back on doing those things. So now, who's left to deal with it? As the uh, St. Louis officer said, we send the police because they're open 24-7. They're not always the best qualified. We've long known that we need a greater social network. But if you just target policemen and individual acts that occur in your community, Nothing's going to happen. I want to hear from Heather on this as well, but really briefly, Ron, is it an either-or proposition? Can can you not increase transparency and accountability for officers while also providing that additional social support for communities? Absolutely, but it's not a vacuum. It's not a vacuum. So we, but I, I find astonishing that you'd have the city of Memphis. Oh, we got to fix this problem. Memphis has had one of the lowest paid police departments. They've lowered their pensions. They pay virtually nothing to get hired there. And so then they go, whoa, we have a problem. Well, they've known that problem from the beginning. So I agree with all that. We've had psychological testing in Texas 25 years ago. That was passed by the unions. Our training and licensing was all passed by the unions. I've not seen a single police chief in this country advocate for real reform, pay well, hire well, recruit well, and demand the best. And we can fix that part of the problem. The second is get the social programs in there, the healthcare workers, the, the, all the things that these people need. If you look at all the interactions between the police and people with mental challenges, many of those families have tried and tried to get that person help, and those services aren't available to the poor in our society. I just want to mention that Memphis is offering a $15,000 signing bonus for for new officers. Heather, what do you think are the next best steps, and and do you think police unions have have a role to play here? Uh, They do. Uh, If you're vocal and you're you're standing for what's right, you really do um, have a say. Uh, I found that with my career. But I will piggyback off of some of what Ron just said. Social programs, we can't keep sending police to things that aren't police matters. That's the first issue there. It's right up at the top. I also believe you should have longer probation periods for police officers uh, so you can start weeding them out. When they're not suited for that position, we can start weeding them out. Pay is critical as well. You can't say you want accountable police officers. Most people view what you pay them as their worth. So that's important as well. So there are a number of things that you can do. Civilian oversight boards are critical. They must have teeth with subpoena power. It must be diverse. You must have community input, but the community can't always control every avenue of law enforcement. It has to be balanced. Well, we'll end on this email from Richard, who says the only way that anything will change is to eliminate qualified immunity. When law enforcement does wrong, it doesn't affect their pocketbooks. The city usually pays out millions for the wrongdoing. If a civil suit could be filed for any infractions by law enforcement, things would start to change. 
Well, this is one of a number of conversations we'll be having on this topic. I want to thank William Jones. He's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Rhonda Lord, a police union negotiator. And Heather Taylor, the deputy police safety director for the city of St. Louis. She's also a 20-year police veteran. Thanks to you all for your time. Today's producers were Chris Remington and Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.